And it's really taking the time in these interviews to go over, above, and beyond because you never know what little detail will emerge. He says, I have two witnesses that I need help with. They're four and six years old, and I cannot get through to them. When you got involved in a trial, when you were just doing that, and everything else was in the background, it was like hyper-focus. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And Francie is taking a much-needed vacation for the first time in the history of Best Case, Worst Case. So today with me in the studio is... Maureen O'Connell, retired FBI agent and member of the XG team. And with us today, we have a very special guest. Hi, I'm Lonnie Coombs. I was a former criminal prosecutor with the L.A. County DA's office for 18 years. Well, thank you so much for coming today, Lonnie. We're very happy to have you here, and we want to talk to you about a best case or a worst case in your career. So please, to start, just tell us where you were in your career when this case came to you. So this case came to me in my career about five years in. I was what they consider a fairly new DA. They call them baby DAs. And in the LADA's office, there's a thousand prosecutors. So you work your way up to the bigger cases. You start with the less serious cases Mm -hmm. and then work your way up. So five years, Lonnie, it seems to me like a lot of prosecutors don't even last that long. They get a couple of good trials under their belt and they're out in private practice. Yeah, those are not what we consider to be lifelong prosecutors. I was always planning to be a lifelong prosecutor. I loved my job. I was not going to leave for the lure of more money in the private sector. I felt very passionate about the work that I did and being able to represent the victims. As far as being a baby DA at that point, you're right. It's probably not quite as accurate. I'm considering it more as I had not had my first murder case yet which is kind of a rite of passage as far as those are, you know, the most complex cases. They, it's sort of a rite of passage when you start doing murder cases. Yeah. Well, when I was a prosecutor in the city, I actually was a law clerk for two years and then a prosecutor for three years when I ended up getting recruited into the FBI. Mm -hmm. So I didn't leave to go to private practice. I went to go to the federal government and I planned after maybe five years in the FBI to become an assistant United States attorney. Mm. The only problem was I had so much fun being an FBI agent. 22 (laughs) years passed like that. So I stayed. All right, so 
you're five years into the DA's office, so you're probably starting to get, you know, strong footing in there. You're winning some cases. You're proving yourself as a prosecutor. What were you doing on the day that this particular case came in? I was working late, as usual. Okay. I was working late, and one of the other DAs in my office, who was a well-established, long-seasoned veteran of the office, kind of an old G of the DA's office, he'd done some very big trials already. He came to my office, and he said in his gruff voice, you're a mom, right? And I said, yes, I am. I happen to be a single mom of a son. And he said, I need you. All right. So... When he said that to you, did that like say to you, uh-oh, why is he asking me this question? Crime against a child or what? I was intrigued because that's not usually a question that, you know, a colleague asks you right off the bat if you're mom. But I did know that he was working on a big case. And so I thought, oh, maybe he needs my help. Okay. And so he comes in, he asks you that. What does he say next? What's the opening salvo? He says, I have two witnesses that I need help with. They're four and six years old, and I cannot get through to them. They will not talk to me. They have very important testimony to our case because they were present during the crime. And I, I need to see it. I need somebody to be able to get through to them and make them comfortable so that they can testify. Can a four and six year old really testify effectively? Can you rely on them to say what they said during the interview, during trial? I, I think. It, Anyone who has familiarity with four-year-olds and six-year-olds know that you're never quite sure what you're going to get. And then compound that with being in a courtroom in front of a jury, being asked questions. It was a gamble, but he felt it was extremely important to his case, and he wanted to put them on the stand. Wow. Wow. So it sounded like he had to have them because I know, I think the youngest I ever got qualified to testify was a five-year-old, and it was a very traumatic sexual assault case. But in that case, we were able to get her sworn, and she did understand the difference between right and wrong, the truth and a lie, and how important it was in the court to tell the truth and only the truth. Which is what you have to do anytime you have a child witness. You have to be able to qualify them in front of the judge before they're allowed to testify. And you have to be able to show that this child understands right from wrong, telling the truth, telling a lie, so that when you ask them to tell the truth on the stand, they know what you're talking about. Right, and the problem is that children, really up until the age of five, are very concrete thinkers. And their way of explaining things is, well, you can say, is this the guy who you saw that day? But if they look and he has a different color shoes on, they'll say no, even though they know it's the same person. But because the shoes are different, they might say, no, it's not the same person. Or So they frame things kind of holistically. Yeah, but also that they're, they're also very prone to fantasy. I mean, we teach kids through fairy tales and all this stuff, so they're not very well grounded. Unfortunately, we're sort of training them to live outside the truth. And so sometimes it's very difficult to get them to actually speak about what really happened. But I didn't even know you could get a four-year-old sworn. Okay, so you're now tasked with getting a four-year-old and a six-year-old to open up to you about something horrible that happened, right? Yeah. And when do you meet him? Right then. Really? Yeah, he, ha- he was in the middle of trial. Wow. This was desperate measures. Wow. Um, And they had been flown in. They were staying in a hotel with their aunt and uncle. 
So I went to the hotel room and um, just a small, cramped, little dingy hotel, which is, you know, what the county puts you up in. And I just got down on the floor and started, you know, playing whatever game they had and just played with them for a while. All right. And were they both together at the time or did you have to separate At that time they were because Mm -hmm. I was just introducing myself. I didn't talk about anything. When I talk to them, obviously you talk to them separately. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because the hallmark of any good interview or interrogation always starts with lengthy rapport building. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny that it's almost like baseball. The very basics are true even when you're talking to small children. Right. And part of that, too, is them seeing me interact with their trusted adults, Mm -hmm. which was the aunt and uncle. So we all were in the room together and just talking generally about their trip and, you know, what their home was like and what they were doing, you know, holidays or, you know, school, whatever it was, just talk generally. And and for the listeners that don't know Lonnie, even though she looks, she's about the size of a hummingbird and she's (laughs) unbelievably beautiful, she is a fierce woman and she's a, and she's an unbelievable prosecutor. So to have her on this case was probably just a great resource for that DA that asked you in. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well... So now you're sitting down and you're getting to know this little boy and this little girl. They were named Charles and Diana after Charles and Diana. Oh. Wow. 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 They called the little boy Charlie. So you were able to sit down, build rapport, get to know them a little bit. And then how did you move on? What did you do next? What was your timetable that you had to operate in? By the next day or the day after that. Wow. I mean, he could, you know, you're in trial, so... You can move a few witnesses around a little bit, but you're under the gun every day to fill that eight hours or whatever it is with testimony in front of the jury. The judge isn't going to sit around and wait. Right. And obviously they had planned on putting them in. Now, mind you too, the DA whose case this was, he's this big guy with a really gruff voice. He cannot make it soft. Even louder than that. And so hard to believe. All right, and I thought I was going to get a day off because Francie isn't here. So I can understand why the kids were a little intimidated, but they seemed to be fine with me. And so then I interviewed each of them separately and just asked them, you know, about the case. Yes. Who did you choose first? Uh, The girl was older. I started with her, but she didn't know as much. Mm. She was more to set up the situation because at the time of the actual crime, she was outside in the car. But she was older, so I figured I'd be, it would, you know, it would be easier to talk to her. What kind of information did you get from her? She uh, just talked about, at the time, her parents had split. They were separated. Mm-hmm. And they were living with the mom, but they had gone to spend the night with the dad. So the mom was coming over to pick them up mm-hmm. and take them to their swimming lessons. So she talked about that, how she and her brother had gotten their swimsuits on and how their parents were telling them, you go get in the car, let's go, and how her mom was trying to get them in the car. So she went and got in the car, and she was waiting, and Charlie was still in the house near the entryway. So was she able to recount the details in a good way, in a way that you thought she could actually testify on the stand? Yes, she was fairly clear. I also think she also saw some things from the car after. Okay. okay. Like the, through the picture window or? At the front door. Okay. At the front, because something happened at the front door. Okay. And then you got a chance to interview Charlie. Yes. And what was Charlie like? Charlie was actually quite good when I interviewed him. He listened. He 
you know, didn't give long answers. He's a, you know, five, six-year-old. So he talked about, you know, remembering getting ready for the swim lessons and that he was sitting there sort of waiting for his mom and that his mom was still upstairs with his dad. They were both upstairs in the bedroom and he heard his dad say, sign the papers, sign the papers. Daddy wanted mommy to sign the papers. Y'all, making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on product performance. I tested it out. I love this new native deodorant. You know there are over 8,000 five-star reviews for it? It's been reviewed by the Today Show, Elle Magazine, Pop Sugar, and Refinery29, to name a few. Less is more with native. There are fewer, simpler ingredients, so you know everything that's in the deodorant. And it's worth it. Native is aluminum-free, safe, and effective. It comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for both men and women. Plus, there are new, limited additional seasonal scents throughout the year. There's also an unscented formula and a baking soda-free formula for those with sensitivities. The classic ones, my favorite, coconut and vanilla. I love the way it smells and I always feel confident when I use it, but there's also lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. There are free returns and exchanges in the U.S. For 20% off your first purchase, just go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code BESTCASE during checkout. That's 20% off your first purchase by just going to nativedeodorant.com and using promo code BESTCASE during checkout. Y'all, what actually makes a better toothbrush? Industrial strength power? Claims of miraculous trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you it's less about the brush and more about how you use it. And that's why Quip was created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health, healthier habits. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. The sleek, intuitive design, I have the copper one, is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. These thoughtful features make brushing something you actually want to do twice every day. Good habits matter to live a healthier life, so help form fresh oral health habits with Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash bestcase. This is a simple way to support best case, worst case, and start brushing better, but you have to go to getquip.com slash bestcase to get your first refill free. So go right now to getquip.com slash best case. And then he also said that he heard a loud bang and that he saw his mom come out stumbling down the stairs, like trying to breathe, trying to make noise. And he was worried about her. And then later his dad walked down and his mom ended up collapsing there near the front door. Oh, wow. And... I think we're all pretty clear on what sign the papers means. And it sounds like she didn't want a divorce or she didn't want to break up the family. It's interesting you say that because it took a little while to actually find the exact papers. Mm -hmm. So if I can flash forward for a little bit. Uh 
I ended up becoming second chair on this case because I had good rapport with the kids. I was putting in all the time every night. So the DA who had it said, I'm bringing you on essentially just as time went on. He threw me more witnesses to put on. I ended up doing half of the closing argument with him. We went through the case. It ended up being a hung jury. So we tried it again. There was one juror on the jury. There's always one. Who was a writer and wanted to write about this case. It was it was a fairly, you know, salacious case. And so she held out for not guilty. So in the time that we were preparing for the second case, now I was on the case. So I, this was back in the early 90s where, you know, computers, we were still learning about them and they had a computer. So I took it over to uh, the police department where they had this new computer, you know, section. Yeah. I said, go through this and see if you can find anything. And on the hard drive, which had not had been erased, they were able to pull up this disomaster where he had filled in the amount of $1,000 a month in payments where he was a very wealthy economist and would have been, should have been paying a lot more than that. So for those that don't know what a DISO master is, that's the formula that the courts use to determine what your spousal support or your child support is going to be. And you put all your information in there on every penny you have, and the court determines, or the DISO master will spit out how much you're going to have to pay. Right. Yeah, and he should have been paying a lot more, but he had actually filled out the divorce papers saying that she would just be paid 1000 a month. Right, and so she didn't want to sign it, and then he shot her. Yeah, in the heart. In the heart. In the heart. And so her little four-year-old son is watching her stumble down the stairs and die right at his feet. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's horrible. Poor and all I, fella. all I remembered was Daddy wanted Mommy to sign the papers. Wow. And his testimony ended up being even more important because this defendant very smart, very arrogant, took the stand. Of course. And said it was all an accident. He had a whole story about it. It was the day that the federal jury came back and acquitted the Rodney King defendants. Mm. And so it was a year after the riots that had happened from the Simi Valley verdict. And so people were worried that there were going to be riots again. And so people were, you know, taking precautions. And his story was that she was worried driving the kids to the swim class. And so she wanted a gun for protection. So he was showing her how to use his gun. It went off accidentally and shot her through the heart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It always happens that when you're showing someone how to shoot, you point the barrel of the weapon right Right at at a person's heart. heart. Yeah. In, In a trajectory that ended up being she was lower. They were both tall people. She, it was a downward trajectory. So my theory of it was that she was on her knees and he was telling her, sign the papers, sign the papers. And that's how you got the trajectory through the heart. Wow. Downward. Well, all right. So in the first time around, you had 11 voting for guilty and mm-hmm. one holding out. Mm-hmm. Did the judge admonish that person? No. Not at all. No, it, it's, it's a very delicate balance for uh, jurors, how much the judge can step in. They don't 
you don't find out necessarily what's going on in the jury room until everything's done, mm-hmm. right? So we didn't know that was going on. And that's when you poll the jurors to After find you poll out. the jurors or some other juror might tell you. And if it's up to juror misconduct, you know, as a prosecutor, you don't have much you can do. You essentially retry the case. But Right, you retry the case. But if this juror actually held out because she was planning on writing about the case. Right. That, that's what we heard, right? But she's going to take the stand and deny that. So, But did one me. of the other jurors say that that's what was going on? That's that's what we heard. Once the once the verdict is in and the jury is dismissed, it's not like you can bring them all back. You're, you're done, right? Yeah, I don't know. I would want to bring her back and charge her with juror can, misconduct. Right, you can charge that juror, but you, it, it doesn't save the verdict. The verdict no, it doesn't. It's, our, to, it's a hung jury. Right, yeah. so you have to go back and retry the case. Yeah. How long did you wait before the retrial? I don't remember. Months. And for our listeners that don't know, when you're involved in a trial, afterwards, oftentimes, either the prosecution or the defense or both will choose to talk to as many of the jurors as they can to find out where the case went sideways or however you put it. So it's crucial if you're going to move forward with another prosecution. Um, I wanted to go back for a second to finding the paperwork and the defendant's story. He said that he was showing her how to use the gun. Did you find that divorce papers were already filed or was it just the DISO master that, what did we have here exactly? Yeah, they were, they were separated. Okay, so she had been talking to friends and family and writing in her diary about this abusive relationship, that he had been abusive to her for a number of years. And one of the scenarios that she talked about or her friend talked about is that he would pull the gun on her and scare her with the gun and that she was deathly afraid of guns. She never wanted to touch guns. She never liked them in her house. And so then his story was that she actually wanted the gun that day and that he was showing her how to use this gun so that she could borrow it while they So were you able to put the friends on the stand to talk about her behavior around guns before? We were able to get some of that information in. She also was talking to a therapist. She had a new boyfriend. So we were able to get, and and obviously the defense is fighting all of that, right? But Mm -hmm. we got it on because it talked about her state of mind, which became an issue because he was saying she wanted the gun. Right. So he opened the door. Yes. Great. Well, so you go to trial a second time. Now you're fully engaged in the case. This is really your first real murder trial, right? Mm-hmm. And how was it? How did you feel? I was, this is going to sound weird because it's a murder case, you know, but I was invigorated. I was enthralled. I was stimulated by it. I was on, like every nerve of my body was on high alert the entire time. Because hypervigilance. Yes, because the stakes were so high. And at this point, I felt very connected to the victim. She had been in a bad relationship. She had been abused for years, and she had finally gotten the courage to get away from this guy and start her life over. And she had to. She had to essentially, you know, sneak out with her kids and fight him tooth and nail. He had a lot of money, he had a lot of prestige. He had been able to just, you know, keep her down and tell everybody else it was fine, and nobody believed her. She had actually started a new relationship where she was happy and she was coming into her own. And then he had the arrogance to shoot her in the heart and think he was going to get away with it because he could talk his way out of it. So I felt I was literally her 
mouthpiece, her voice in that courtroom. And I wanted her voice to come alive for them. And you were in the right place at the right time. And I know from experience, when I was involved in a case that I was really passionate about, when the crime was just so offensive to me, I just... I had endless, boundless energy yes. when it came to working it. Your adrenaline is just like going, Absolutely. going, going, night and, I, and day. I actually loved when I worked for the FBI and when I was a prosecutor, when you could focus on one major thing yes. at a time. Because mm -hmm. when I was a prosecutor, we had 200 cases in our caseload. Yeah. Yeah. And it was not an unusual day when you had 10 cases where you had hearings or right. trials about to start and you had no idea which one was going to go forward on that particular day because any of them could. Mm -hmm. And it was insane. Your brain was all over the place. But when you got involved in a trial, when you were just doing that and everything else was in the background, it was like hyper-focus. Yeah. It's like yeah. having blinders on, but yeah. in a very yes. good way. Yeah. Now... There was something else interesting about Charlie's testimony, which ended up being crucial as well. And that was not only did he sort of give us the motive, which was daddy wanted mommy to sign the papers, but the way he described that she came down the staircase first and then later daddy came down. Daddy took the stand and said, oh, it was an accident and I was helping her down the stairs. Mm -hmm. I was taking care of her. I was trying to get help for her. And that's not the way his you know, then four-year-old son testified and saw it. Wow. And, and I thought that was very crucial too. And did and did Diana corroborate what the son had said? She was out in the out in the van. Right, but you said earlier that she saw something. Yeah. She saw her mom collapse near the front door. Without, Without her dad. Yeah. Wow. So their testimony was actually crucial to this trial. I do understand why the DA wanted to get them to testify. And it's so fortunate that you were there and you were able to break through to them and get them to talk about it. And the devil's in the details. Yeah, it really is. And it's really taking the time in these interviews to go over, above, and beyond because you never know what little detail will emerge. Exactly right. Because we didn't know what the defendant was going to stay on the stand. We right. didn't know that that was going to end up being inconsistent. Right. So it's always better to have a lot more information. That's right. Absolutely. Wow. So now the jury has it the second time. Yeah. What and happened? I just have to tell you one other thing that happened during the closing okay. argument too. That was, it's always very helpful for the jury if, especially in a murder case, I try to place them right there at the time of the killing. But you have to base it all on evidence. You have to have something to substantiate, you know, the theory that you're giving to them. So she had the downward shot through the heart. She also had some um, bruising underneath her scalp on one side of her head. And she had this weird little crescent red mark on her forehead. So I looked at that and looked at that and looked at that. And I got the murder weapon, which we had, his gun. You put someone down on their knees, you're holding them at gunpoint saying, sign the papers. You grab them by their hair. That's why you get the bruising underneath their hairline. And you stick the gun in the forehead. In front of the jury, I did that on my detective. And then when he pull, I pulled back and I, you know, the right angle for, to, for the trajectory in the heart. Then he turned to the jury and we had one picture of her face from the autopsy with that little crescent. He turned to the jury and he had the same Crescent mark. It wow. was from the gun. I, I just, just got, got chills. <laughs> I love it. High five. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Good job. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've had the privilege over the last couple of weeks to interview a bunch of family members from murder victims, detectives, everything, all kinds of witnesses with Lonnie. And she's very methodical. She, like me, really takes the time, but she's so organized 
she ends up getting far more information than the regular Joe. A lot of people go into these situations and they just ask five, 10 quick questions. It's a hit and run and off they go. And it's usually the people that really spend the time, connect, find the common ground. You're able to talk around things. Mm -hmm. You're able to talk above, below, horizontally, vertically. And yeah. I think you, you're able to just kind of fish out a lot more information. And you That's have to great. listen. Yes. Right? We both talked about that. Maureen's amazing too. It's just been such a, a pleasure to work with her. And you have to listen. You have to know. You have to be totally prepared. You have to know all the details that there are to know out there. And then you go in there and you listen. Mm -hmm. And listening is actually hearing and cognitively engaging with the information, understanding it, processing it, mm -hmm. not just passively sitting there. Right. And so that is a very important part of interviewing, active listening. So we now know this case was very important to you. You're hyper-focused, you get great testimony, the defendant gets up there and testifies. Your closing argument, you were able to prove that the crescent mark on her forehead most likely came from him shoving the gun and pressing against her forehead and threatening her. What did the jury do? The jury convicted him. So how did that make you feel? I felt relief for her. Mm. I never take, I, I never look at guilty verdicts as victories. It wasn't like an, a notch in my belt. It wasn't a game. I always wanted the process to work. I would put everything into it. And once I finished my closing argument and the jury went back in the jury room, I knew at that point. It it's was, out of your hands. It's out of my hands. I don't know what's going to happen. There's so many things that can enter into that. And but if I, you've done the best you can do, that's all we that's can right. do. That's right. Then I don't have any regrets. But when they came out, I was so relieved for her and for her kids. Because this had been an ordeal for her kids, too. I didn't want this to be a waste for them. Right. So. And so can I ask you two things? Do you know what happened with the kids? And was this a best case or a worst case for you? I, I did know for a while what happened to the kids because their aunt and uncle who they went and lived with kept in touch and would send holiday pictures every once in a while. Aww. Yeah. That's and great. it looked like they were having a, you know, a good life and being raised by people who loved them. That's great. But before you answer the best case, worst case, I think it's a misnomer. I, I liked what you said about you don't look at this as a, a win or a notch on your belt or anything. I think it's a misnomer that law enforcement and prosecutors hate defense attorneys and everything. There's a lot of them that are jerks or something, but we believe in the system, we mm -hmm. do. And we believe that people have the right to a good defense. That's right. If anything happened to us, we would want to be defended well. Absolutely, the only thing I don't like about the process is that the defense attorney basically has the right and the ability and takes it all the time to lie. I agree. And even though they know there's evidence to the contrary, even though they know there's incontrovertible evidence to the contrary, they will argue things that are absolutely lies. Right. And they know it. And that is, in my mind, an aberration in the system. It is not how the system's supposed to work, but they do it all the time. I also think that we, as law enforcement and prosecutors, have to work much harder and go over far more hurdles than the defense does. And always be honest reason. and truthful. Yes. Absolutely. And if I had a defense attorney that wasn't that good on the other side, it's my duty to make sure that things are done right. So I always like to have a really good, accomplished, experienced defense attorney on the other side. Otherwise, I'm you know trying to do both sides, essentially, because you want that verdict to be fair and to be valid, not be overturned. Right, you yeah, want it to stand up on appeal. Yeah. yeah, withstand the test of time, right. So 
Best case or worst case in your mind? This is one of my best cases. I felt like the right thing was done. It was, it was hard to put those kids through that. And so I didn't want it to be for naught. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was worth putting them on the stand. I also saw how so many different areas of your life experience can be pulled upon to make your performance and your abilities in the courtroom that much better. You know, being a mom, I'd been through a divorce, I'd been in bad relationships. You, you understand the case and the context and the common sense and the reactions so much better when you bring your life experience to, you know, the way that you're understanding the evidence. And, and also, you know, the same thing, you, you can't get tied up in the jury. The jury is going to do what they're going to do. Right. How much time did he get? He got life without the possibility of parole. Wow. Because when we found that document on the computer, we added a special circumstance of murder for financial gain. Wow. If we had not had that, which we didn't in the first trial, the top he could get was 25 to life. When they found that special allegation to be true that it was a murder for financial gain, it made it a life without possibility of parole. Good job on getting that over to the newly formulated computer group. I remember those days. Wow. Well, Lonnie, that was great. It's it's a heart-wrenching story, but obviously it has very good lessons to be learned. And that is not only about how you talk to kids and witnesses and how important it is to be overly prepared, but also how in your job as a prosecutor, you saw it as a way to give the victim back their voice. And that's a wonderful thing. And I know that's what we try to do here at Best Case, Worst Case. And that's why we give people in law enforcement and the related professions an opportunity to talk about the, the most challenging, the most heartwarming, and the most- Devastating. Devastating cases of their careers. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Maureen, for co-hosting with me. And Francie, we miss you, even though if you were here, you would probably be making fun of me. (laughs) Thanks for having me, you guys. Yeah, and you're welcome, Jim. Lonnie and I took it easy on you today. Thanks, (laughs) I appreciate it. All right, well, till next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Tsumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's D, the number two, L, dot org.